Welcome to Invoking Witchcraft, the podcast where the sacred and profane come out to play. So call the quarters and set the round. It's time for another episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Invoking Witchcraft. I am your co-host, Jay Allen Cross, and I am here with... Britton Boyd of Archaic Honey. And we are very excited to be here talking with you guys once again. Thank you guys for following along with us here. Um, How has your day been, Britton? It's been pretty good. I just had the mail arrive, and I have two boxes of makeup that I really, really want to open up. But I'm got. I gotta wait until we're done recording. So oh, it's that Aries anticipation. We want it. We want it now. Aries impatience. I love that. I have currently been dealing with um, the Mars and Gemini situation that has been happening in the entire world, but specifically through the Twitter space. I have joined the Twitter space, and it's like Instagram, but if Instagram is marijuana, Twitter is just like cocaine. And then you add Mars and Gemini on top of it. And things have been spicy in the Twitter sphere. Oh, my God. Twitter Everything's is canceled. I'm canceled. Oh, boy. That's canceled. yeah, that sounds exciting. I don't do the Twitter, so it's, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to not be 100 years old. I can't TikTok, so I'm going to try and Twitter. Right. TikTok <laughs> is pretty hard. There's a big learning curve and I feel too old for it. I'm 36, so. I can't TikTok. Ugh. Well, we will persevere, though. We will. Right. We have a very exciting episode for you guys today. Yes. So we have Corey Hutchinson of the podcast New World Witchery, but I'm going to pass this over to Corey and allow him to introduce himself. Hi, I'm I'm great. I'm so, so ridiculously excited to be here. Um, I've, you know, I've kind of been trying to work my way through. I was gonna say your back catalog. You've only got a couple episodes that I've been able to get on iTunes so far, or I guess it's Apple Music now, right? Mm-hmm. Or Apple Podcasts. But like literally from that first episode, I was like, oh, these these are these are people I love. These these are absolutely <laughs> the kind of people that I'm into uh in my witchcraft podcast. So I'm very, very excited to be here. Um Yeah. Just by way of introduction, for those who don't know me, um, my name is Corey Thomas Hutchison. I host a podcast called New World Witchery. Um, We've been doing doing that for a little over a decade now. Um, My co-host, Lane, and I talk about North American witchcraft and folk magic traditions uh, and practices, things like that. I've got a book coming out in April, um, uh, which is is also called New World Witchery, and which will focus on all the same stuff. Uh, it's basically the the practices of North American folk magic. It's kind of a doorstop. It's around uh, 450, 500 pages. Very, very dense. Um, wow. So, <laughs> so if nothing That's else, awesome. you know, you can use it to hold things down on your desk. It's very effective. For that. <laughs> That's so, my kind yeah. of book. Yeah. So I'm sort of fangirling on like having you on the show because I remember when I first started off in witchcraft, you were, you and Lane were the first people that I listened to on podcasts. So yeah, this is like really exciting. And I have followed your work off and on over the years. Um, Are you still podcasting? We are. Yes. Yeah. We still put out about two episodes a month, um, give or take, you know, one, one every couple of months, maybe we miss, or we do like a Patreon exclusive episode that month instead. But yeah, about two episodes a month. Um, We're also 
dipping toes into a variety of uh, media. We've just discovered the, the magic of Instagram reels, which is, which is kind of fun. Um, we, we are on TikTok, despite the fact that I am, I, I'm older than you, Britain. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. I'm good at TikTok. I'm actually really bad at it, <laughs> but, but I'm there. So, um, so right. we're kind of playing around with some of that as uh, that, that media as well. But yeah, we've been doing this for a while and um, uh, you know, it, our love for it hasn't diminished at all. We, it, it's one of those things where you start doing North American folk magic and there's no bottom to that. Well, like there's just not, um, it, it goes, it goes and goes and goes and goes. And no matter how deep you go down the, the rabbit hole or the well makes a metaphor uh, there, <laughs> but, um, but no matter how deep you go, um, you're, you're going to find new branches, new ways to go, new directions to travel. And you're always going to find more, uh, American folk magic that you can, you can unpack and learn about, um, and, and that presents a lot of opportunities and some interesting challenges as well along the way. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, what kind of challenges have you encountered? Well, I mean, obviously there's the, the kind of the, the big beast uh, of cultural appropriation, right? Uh, that's a massive monster. Um, and, you know, we live in a post-colonial world, uh, a world in which colonialist influence and colonialist bad behavior, frankly, um, has done a lot of damage. Uh, at the same time, it's also provided a lot of the resources that we have that have, have helped us understand some of this folk magic too. So there's constantly a walk on that tightrope of like, okay, well, I've got this interesting collection of sources that is also potentially uh, stolen from from the people that it's about, right? Um, mm-hmm. So navigating that can be very, very tricky. Understanding where a, pl- a practice's closure boundaries are, um, just what is okay to talk about and what is not okay to talk about, you know, that, that can be really, really tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even beyond that, there's, there's always the sort of issue of, you know, personal, the personal stuff that we're doing, right? So like, uh, our personal practices, um, have changed over the years, the things that we're into and that we're, that we're doing have, have, um, you know, morphed, uh, over time. Uh, and that's, I think a good thing, but it also means that we're, we're sometimes answering to, uh, people who are listening to episodes that are from, from 10 years ago, um, talking about things that we're no longer uh, you know, doing, or that we're doing very differently, uh, which is right. fine. I, I actually love that. That's a good conversation to have. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Jay. So do you want to get into the book talk or shall I start off with a question? So your new book, are you coming at this from a direction of kind of like, um, like modern American folk magic or how it was way back in the day? Because you know, these things, of course, grow and evolve with us as we get further and further away from colonial times, the practices change. Where kind of on that timeline does your book center? Sure. Um, all of it. Uh, it's, it's <laughs> uh, you know, in 450 pages, you have a lot of a lot of leeway to, to cover a lot of ground. Uh, so so I, I do have, you know, obviously, we're kind of digging into the roots of, of these practices and looking backwards. But there are definitely sections uh, and portions of the book that are much more focused on contemporary manifestations of folk magic and witchcraft. Um, near the end, for example, uh, one of the things I discuss is the Three Kings Rite, which is this, um, it's kind of a contemporary summoning ritual that really is essentially a creepypasta, right? It's a creepypasta game that, that uh, people developed and played. Um, but it would it works in a lot of the same ways that, for example, somebody might summon um, summon a particular entity with a grimoire uh, using, you know, mirrors and positions and things like that. So we see this sort of continuity of, of magic that is contemporary and definitely folk magical, 
um, but is also kind of following some of the things that have come out of the past. And really, that's a lot of what I'm trying to do is capture the sense of um, magic is and has always been here. It's always been a part of the North American experience. And uh, anyone who says otherwise is a liar. Um, and and it's it's wonderful. Um, but there's there's angles of it that I think people people love to sort of imagine that that folk magic is part of a bygone era and doesn't doesn't have any relevance to today or. Uh, and there are pieces that I certainly wouldn't practice. I'm not going to go out and, um, you know, boil a black cat alive to get a magical bone out of it. Um, like we find in some of the, the, the rituals recorded by Zora Neale Hurston, not going to do it. <laughs> um, there are, there are various spells that involve cutting the, the hair off of an African American, um, for the spell. And I'm like, no hard pass, not my thing. I think that's probably, probably off limits at this point. Yeah. Um, and probably should have been off limits at all times previous, but you know, it, it, it's part of the recorded lore. So we can look at that. We can say, okay, what was the mechanic kind of working under some of this stuff? I mean, in Britain, I know that's definitely up your alley is kind of understanding the mechanics of the folk magic and then being able to unpack that and say, okay, now how does that work today? Uh, how do we fit that into a contemporary practice? And it's a lot of what um, the book is aiming to do. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I love it. I can't wait for it to come out. Do you have a date set for the book release? In theory, it's April 8th. Um, I'm hoping that I will get my hands on copies a little sooner than that. But uh, it, it, with book publishing, they tell you a date and sometimes it's out a week before that. Sometimes it's out a week after that. Just It, it varies a little bit. Well, my birthday is April 19th. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I, I think a copy could find its way to you for, for a birthday <laughs> present. I think that would be reasonable. And, okay. And uh, yeah. and uh, Jay, your 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 birthday if you're in Aries is going to be coming up too, right? Yes, mine is the thirteenth. <laughs> like oh. drop that wish list in the links. So drop that in there. <laughs> hmm. Love it. Okay, Corey. I love to ask people this question. Mm-hmm. Anyone that we interview, what was like your first experience um, that you would that you had as a child that you would maybe later define as w- experiencing witchcraft? Like, what was your oh shit moment? Uh, I mean, there's so many moments in childhood where I was like, this this feels very real. I remember one thing um, was um, the, the the feeling of the wind responding to me as sort of an, a living entity. Um, I, w- I would go out, there was this really specific kind of hill near my home and I would go up on top of that hill you know, I'd stand there with my wizard staff and, you know, shout at the wind and everything like that. And I don't know if it's just that, uh, yeah, you can totally picture that. And you're like, yep, he was, he was that nerd. Um, and I was, Gandalf. <laughs> Same. I was much more Radagast the Brown than Gandalf. Thank you. But no, okay, that's, that <laughs> okay. was, that was way nerdier than it needed to be. Um, but, but no, the, the, the whole thing was, you know, I'm standing up on the Hill and I would notice that with certain gestures, certain movements, um, certain kind of attitudes, attitudes and behaviors, the wind would seem to sort of rise or fall or respond in different ways to what I was doing. Um, and I think a lot of that, and looking back on that now, I sort of think, well, it was probably a particular wind spirit in that area at that time that was responding to the energy of a child playing with it, which is a very, very powerful thing. We see this in fairy lore a lot, right? Where, where um, fairies interact with uh, with people because they're they're expressing curiosity and that can be really dangerous too. Um, I wouldn't recommend necessarily like wandering into a fairy ring and laying down, falling asleep. Probably not going to end well for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so there's some caution I would throw to that, but at the same time, that sudden recognition that there was something alive reacting to me in what had only been really presented to me as an inanimate force before was very, very clearly 
magic. There was there was something to that, and and that has sort of followed me and pervaded uh, my experience of magic ever since. Mm, beautiful. I love how and th- and this happened to you like as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Just like how children innately view the world as magical, mm-hmm. and then it is like later conditioned out of us. And I had a similar experience with wind as a kid, but I was more of like this feral blueberry picking snake <laughs> grabbing kind of a child <laughs> running around in the woods and the swamps of Florida. So I would yeah. have been your friend and I would have been terrified of you, but it would have worked out. That would have been fine. So. <laughs> yeah. We could have been best buds. Absolutely. <laughs> so switching gears again, we're kind of coming at you from both sides. Cause we want the whole story all the way. When we, write a book, you know, there's always kind of a purpose to it. There's something that we're hoping it's going to bring to the world. So what, what is kind of, what was the goal with writing this book and, and how do you hope it's going to impact our community as workers? Thank you. That, that, I love that question just because I, I think that's, I, I think that people don't always understand that, that that's going on in an author's head, that they have a goal, that they have a purpose behind the book. They sometimes sort of think like, well, they've just piled a bunch of stuff together you know, and cash the check or something like that, which I think that there are authors that maybe do that. But, um, but I know from your book and, uh, and, and hopefully for, for mine, what people are going to be gathering is that there is, there is something we're trying to accomplish here. Um, and I don't think, I don't think our goals are actually all that dissimilar for, for me. What I'm really trying to do with my book is get people to look at the folk magic that exists in the world around them, particularly folk magic that is a part of their life already. Um, I can't tell you how many times over the past decade or more um, we've had people kind of interact with us and we'll talk about a specific folk magical practice and somebody will respond to that. They'll send us an email or, or something and say, oh, that was really, really interesting. I just, I wish I had stuff like that in my, you know, in my folk magic, or I wish I had some, something like that accessible to me. And most of the time I'll say, well, have you looked, have you actually gone and, and looked at your community, looked at your experience? Um, it looked at the the kind of people around you and what they're doing um, because I have never found a community where folk magic doesn't exist. It's there. All you have to do is scratch a little bit and, and you can find this. And in doing, you know, in this book, you know, I'm, I'm definitely presenting a lot of different cultural versions of folk magic. Um, so Curenderismo and Brujeria both show up in this. Um, Hoodoo as well uh, shows up in this. But I'm not talking about how, you know, I'm not telling people how they're going to go become a brujo. Uh, I'm not talking about how you're going to become a curandera, right? I'm not talking about how you're going to go and become um, a, a, a root doctor. I'm talking about these practices as a way of sort of saying, look, they all share some common DNA, which is folk magic, right? They all share this common, common folk magical core elements at times. There are things that overlap. And if you just look hard enough, if you know what you're looking for, if you know the mechanics, you can probably find something like that in your world as well in your in your worldview so a really good example of this is container spells right um if if you're in if you're practicing hoodoo you have mojo mojo hands or nation sacks even right these are very specific types of container spells where you're bundling up ingredients um to gain a sort of magical advantage or purpose those exist in a lot of different cultural contexts right and the thing is, you don't have to do, you don't have to steal from hoodoo to do this. You, you can find the version that is already a part of your community, right? Which may involve, maybe uh, instead of wrapping stuff up in flannel, it may be folding it into a piece of paper or a $2 bill. 
Um, and, and wrapping that in red string, carrying that with you as a good luck charm. It's still the same mechanics of magic, but it's there within your experience. Um, and we had, you know, we had people who would, you know, hear a practice on the, uh, on our show for like sweeping, right? Sweeping under someone's feet. Um, uh, uh, Britain, you grew up in, in the South. I don't know if you experienced this, but if you swept under somebody's feet, you were sweeping away their luck and they may not, they might not get married because of this, right? It's a mm-hmm. common superstition. Well, people would hear that and be like, oh, I didn't realize that was witchcraft. That was just a thing that people believed. And it's sort of like, right. yes, it is a thing that people believed and it's a magical practice. And it's part of the witchcraft that is in your community already, but you have yes. to go and make those connections and, and seek out your, your magic in your community to, to get that. So. Right. Yeah. Like one thing that kind of came to mind was my mother always said, if your hands itch, that means money's coming to you. Yes. Or the like, if your ear itches or your ears, whatever, somebody's talking about yeah. you. It's nose, yeah, yeah. So you, yeah. And the nose too. So yeah, what your book is like tapping into is like this, this current, this mm-hmm. common current that's flowing through folk magic traditions here in North America. Is that correct? Yeah, very much. Very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want people to see what's available to them if they'll do a little bit of work to, to unpack it and find it. Yes. It takes work. We talk about that a lot on this podcast. <laughs> effort needs to be it's, exerted. <laughs> yes. Work and effort has to happen in your witchcraft. And I think that's really important and something that's really being um, not talked about or is like lacking in the modern uh, contemporary like witchcraft communities. And especially with social media is people are just plucking and picking and not like looking at the underlining current, you know, or the root of where things are coming from. The why we started doing this in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like historical contexts as well. That's so important that you bring up this idea that folk magic is kind of all around us. And and a lot of the times people don't even realize it's a thing. So when I was doing research for my book, the bulk of my research was sitting down with Mexican people and asking them, you know, about their folk magic practices. And it would be so funny. I would be sitting down with just like, you know, I'd be in like a Mexican restaurant. I'd be sitting there with a waitress and I'd be like, well, like the book that I'm writing is about Mexican folk magic. And they'd be like, I don't do that though. I don't, I don't practice Mexican folk magic. And I'm like, I'm like, I, I'm like, I know, hold up though. I'm like, let, let me just ask you some questions. And I would start off with something like, you know, um, can you tell me about your family using Vicks Vaporub? And they're like, oh, absolutely. You know, my my abuela used to do this thing where she'd like um, mix the Vicks Vaporub with like spit and salt. And then they'd, and then she, they'd kind of go, oh, that is magic, yeah. isn't it? And I'm like, yeah. And, and then they're like, and then this one. And then and then she used to tie the red ribbons on, on her aloe plant to, you know, do this or that. And, and then you could just see their minds just start to realize, oh my God, this is magic. And then they yeah. called like their moms or they called their, their grandmas and bring them in too and be like, tell him what you do with the Vicks Vaporub. Because they, <laughs> they didn't realize this stuff is so ingrained into our culture. It's all around us that people don't realize mm-hmm. it's magic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean- it's it's partly uh, I mean I don't know, I don't know about the fault but it's partly sort of the the outcome of the Enlightenment era and sort of the colonial mindset that followed the Enlightenment era where we were all going to become very very scientific um, and very um, you know empirical about things and we were going to export that scientific imp- empiricism and, men- and that mentality of ma- sort of uh, objective materialism everywhere the white man touches basically was kind of what was happening um, which was which is a lot of places. 
And in doing that, I think that that was a, that led to a lot of disenchantment, a sort of sense of, sense of disenchanting the world. And so it's it's really interesting. Like I love that you're you're saying like no wait talk about the Vicks vapor, vapor rub. I don't know if they did they talk about uh, doing the butter on on burns and stuff like that. Did you run into that at all? Oh, I did run into that one. No. Yeah, I've I've had I've had a few students from um, um, usually from um, it's the sort of northern Mexican um, uh, Mexican American uh, families that talk about using butter on burns and stuff like that. But um, whatever the case, um, that you know, running into this and finding out, you know, what that enchantment wasn't totally quashed. That, that and, and there's a lot of good that comes out of that sort of scientific mindset. Obviously, um, we have medicine. We you know, right now we really need that, right? Yeah. Um, but there's also a sense of like you can have wonder that exists alongside this too, and and I think that people just have to kind of poke into their communities a little bit to find that wonder. Absolutely, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take this in a completely different direction, and I want to talk about divination because I know you wrote a book about divination, correct? Mm-hmm. I did, yes, about uh, uh, yeah. fortune telling with playing cards. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about playing card reading? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that it's something that is in is kind of overlooked. People put so much emphasis on the tarot. Mm-hmm. And um, playing cards are really overlooked as a form of divination. And it's funny, I played cards, uh, a playing card game with a friend of mine recently. And I kept wanting to read the cards. I don't know if that ever happens to you mm-hmm. if you're playing a card game with a friend and a friend who's like not into magic or folk magic, whatever. And you're like, Oh, two of spades. Ah, shit. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about your divination practice, like how you came to it, um, how you learned, how you practice and whatnot? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I'll be perfectly honest. I learned, um, I learned playing card divination largely out of a book. Uh, you know, that was the the first place Mm -hmm. I picked it up. It was a book called it's all in the cards. Uh, I can't remember the author anymore, but I I mentioned it in, in the book. And then from there, I would, you know, I would practice kind of her method of doing this playing card divination. And then I started looking into the kind of history and lore of playing cards and realizing, well, playing cards and, and tarot essentially start off from the same kind of roots. They're, they're, tarot cards really are playing cards, um, you know, back in the uh, 1600s, 1700s. That's what they are. But then I was finding all this really interesting additional lore about playing cards. Um, so, for example, there's this this kind of old story that goes around about the playing card deck being the soldier's prayer book and Bible, right? Where they they get busted for having playing cards, uh, and the, uh, this guy gets busted in the army for having playing cards. And um, his you know his commanding officer is like, "Well, you're gonna you're gonna pay for this because you're not supposed to have you know vices in the army." Um, and he says, "No, this is this is my Bible. This is my prayer book. I you know the threes are the Holy Trinity, right?" Um, the twos represent Adam and Eve, right? Um, the, the the aces is the one unity of God. Uh, and, and going through and like, and it's it's really it's really kind of a joke that the soldier is kind of playing on the commanding officer, saying like, well, if you take this away, you're taking away my 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 Bible. You can't do that. But at the same time, there is a secondary kind of layer to this, which is, yeah, these things have um, they have meanings. If if you just want to do the work to ascribe those meanings, to work through those meanings. And see the connections between, you know, the different suits, the different pips, um, even the, the kings, the queens, the jacks, they all, you know, there, there are a lot of people who talk about the, the kings representing four different crown heads of Europe, for example. Um, and, and like, you know, who is, you know, Char- I think Charlemagne is, um, oh, is he the king of spades or is he the king of diamonds? I can't remember which, but whichever, you know, these, these kind of like um, these, these kind of figureheads that are built into the card decks, right? 
And so they have this kind of inherent meaning to them if if you want it to be there. Um, and they can just be playing cards. You can just be playing the game of spades with your with your your cousins at the uh, family reunion, and that's great. But then, like you, like if I'm sitting there doing that, I start to see things like you know getting getting flopped on the on the the table and going well for them, and then realizing wait different headspace you have to be in a different headspace for this for a second. <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah that's what happens to me when i do playing card games i'm like oh shit yeah but it's amazing how many to, to me one of the things that's really amazing and something i don't think people think about enough when it comes to divination is how many forms of divination are also games um are also um connected to games and playing games the the um the ouija board while it doesn't start off as a game, it's definitely a, a tool for spiritualists to communicate with the beyond. It's now, you know, it's a Parker Brothers game, right? You know? Ages five and up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dominoes. People use dominoes for divination. Um, they, they're, abs- they're absolutely a game and they're powerful divinatory tools, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, it, and there's a lot of these games that people are playing now, like, you know, Charlie Charlie, uh, the, the, the pencil spinning game, right? Um, uh, were, were any of these, these sorts of games that people play at sleepovers, right? There's a, there's a potentially a divinatory or a cult aspect to them. Um, that's actually a project I'm kind of working on is, is exploring all the, the, uh, the occult side of games, uh, at some point, but tuck that away and hold on to that. Cause that's what I'm, I'm working on privately. Um, but it is, it is really interesting. There is definitely this, you know, when it comes to any of these divinatory tools, um, understanding that there is a game side to them can actually enhance that divinatory practice because it, it allows you to kind of free up your imagination a little bit and play with them, um, play with um, the information you're getting from the other side or the information you're getting from your ancestors or your guides, whoever whoever's working with you. Um, and, and, it, and you start to realize that there's somebody else playing with you the whole time, right? There's somebody else on the other side of the the cards playing the playing the deck with you, right? So I, I really I really hope that people will, you know, be more playful with their divination, not not get too you know, deadly serious about it. Right. It's good to have a sense of humor about our divination and in our magical spiritual practices as well. I was talking about that a little bit on Instagram yesterday, just kind of like my current uh, social media pet peeve is like witches that just take themselves far too seriously. It's like, come on, lighten up. This shit is hilarious. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I'd much rather um, go in that direction than, than like mm-hmm. the, the direction where you're, you know, where you're, you know, so super like, I don't know, there's all the kind of edgelord, you know, very grave, very serious occultists. Um, and they are dull as dishwater, in my opinion. It's the ones that are playful. Um, like Aiden Walker, I don't know if you've, if you've uh, encountered his work, but his stuff is very playful, very open. And I, and I really enjoy that. And then, yeah, and then, you know, and then there's the whole, like, I don't know if you've seen these, these memes that are, that they're meme readings that are going around where people are, laying out tarot according to memes. So it's like, do you know the, dist- the distracted boyfriend meme? Yes. So you can lay out your tarot oh, cards. Yes. So, so like one is the thing you should be focusing on where you currently are and what you're actually paying attention to. And I'm like, that's flipping genius. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've seen that one. Oh gosh. Now I want to go and like collect all the popular meme formats. I'm totally and then doing do that. And that should be created into like a little booklet. Okay, that's a yep. project for yeah, all I'm, of us. I, yeah, I'm doing that too. So I, I would love to to circle up and and and, uh, and figure out w- what we all find. <laughs> yeah, I love that melding of like these old traditions with like newer things that are happening, like memes and whatnot. 
So I'm curious, do you weave in um, with your playing card practice? Do you also do magic with playing cards um, mm-hmm. as in like with spells and stuff? I, I do. Um, and actually that, so I, I, there was a book back in the nineties when I think tell, it's telling my age, I guess, but um, that was all about kind of doing spells with the tarot. Um, and I had a friend who was really into that. And so I picked up a little bit from that, but mostly I was using cards for divination up to a point. Um, and then I read, um, I don't know if you've encountered this book yet, but it's called Sigil Witchery by Laura Tempest Zakroff. And she talks about sigil systems. And a lot of people are really familiar with like the Austin Nomen Spare, you know, the you put all your letters together, start striking out the vowels, et cetera, et cetera. You get your sigil. Well, she kind of opened it up to me and, and, and I'm, a, and she's, she's a friend of mine as well. So we've had some discussions too, but she, she kind of opened it up to me and got me to think about the fact that sigil crafting can be based on kind of any, um, any kind of system where the symbols are important to you. Right. Um, so, so for a lot of people, it's the alphabet. It's, it's the fact that the alphabet is writing and we communicate with that, but because the cards are important to me, I can also take and find symbolism that works with each of the pips. So um, a heart would be an open round circle for me if I'm thinking about a symbol for that, right? Um, whereas uh, a, a spade might be uh, an X, right? And I can then kind of take those and based on the, the, you know, based on a card reading that I'm doing for a particular spell or based on the specific meaning of the cards under, underneath that spell, I can then figure out what all the different sort of sigils for those cards would be and combine them into a single sigil and then use that as a kind of um, living spell entity. And and then the cards are supporting it and the sigil is supporting it um, simultaneously. So I do a lot of kind of sigil-based spellcraft using my cards um, just because it's it, it, it's way more effective than the other sigil methods that I've, I've worked with. So, so it, every time I use that, I'm like, Oh, this is, this is fascinating uh, seeing this kind of come together. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love uh, how you mentioned yeah, the other cards supporting the work as well. You yeah. just have some like extra buddies there on the side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Rad. That is awesome. I love that. And I also love when you were talking too about the idea of, divination the playing cards and things like that you know having kind of a personality having you know a sense of humor and being playful uh it was something we were talking about in one of our last episodes um was about tarot and we were talking about you know kind of that some that same idea and something that i've come across too is that a lot of divination techniques tend to be tricksters kind of like um like uh, tarot cards or whatever if if you ask them like a dumb question or the same question so many times, they will kind of get spicy with you or they'll start refusing to answer you. Or or somebody somebody sent me this message the other day that was like, well, um, I kept asking the, the tarot over and over again, what's in the room with me? And it kept t- showing up with the devil card. And I'm like, because <laughs> they're trying to freak you out. I'm like, I don't think the devil is in your room. But sometimes when you ask questions like that, I feel like sometimes divinatory practices will have like sarcasm that they'll come back with or, or kind of like their own sort of unique spin on it, which is interesting. Yeah, you'll sometimes when I'm pulling my cards, I'm cursing at my deck. I'm like, God fucking damn it again. <laughs> How dare you? The disrespect from the tarot. Uh, right. But I was telling her too that I have a, another friend who developed the system with tarot where she separates out the major arcana and then she does the spread with the minor arcana. And then she has the person she's reading for roll dice. 
And that will, um, and whatever number that is, is a major arcana card that they get. Mm-hmm. So I love that. That's sort of gameplay with it as well. Yeah. Yeah, I really love that. And I think I think the cards probably, I think a lot of divination systems respond to, to that kind of um, inventiveness and playfulness. Um, they, they want you to, mm-hmm. they want you to, because it, it opens you up, right? It makes your imagination work. And imagination is, is, is kind of the, the landscape of magic. So I think it's really effective. Yeah, I combined bone reading and tarot uh, mm-hmm. together in a previous podcast. Uh, I told the story of how I went to the crossroads and uh, had a little conversation with the devil and became a good bone and card reader. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. It was pretty fun. But yeah, like being playful with your divination and your magic uh, is it's fun. It's needed, I think. Too much seriousness going on in mm-hmm. these waters. Yeah. And I love that, you know, basically now you have a, you have a partner to play with, right? Like the devil, the devil plays, plays the game with you. And how much better is that going to make your readings now? It's so good. I love that. You know, not to toot my own horn, but my readings are pretty, pretty fucking accurate. (laughs) That's awesome. I love it. (laughs) Like They're pretty scary. Little, little scary. Double magic. Um, Jay, do you have the next question? Yeah. So, so mine is kind of a, a two parter. Um, kind of first and foremost, do you consider your book um, more of an academic piece or is this more of kind of like a how to and then piggybacking off of that? Uh, what was your research process like for it? Oh, sure. Um, I don't know. I think my publisher considers it more academic, but as somebody who's in academia, um, I don't just because I know what academic publishing specifically looks like and it's different. Um, it's different than, than what I'm, I'm producing. And it's not to say that I, I think that what I'm producing is is poorer for that. I think that academic publishing is impenetrable sometimes. Um, and beyond the impenetrability, it's inaccessible. Uh, there's all kinds of barriers that get put up, I mean, on, on academic writing. And so some of what I'm doing is pulling from academic writing to put it into a general public format because I feel like people have 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 an, uh, a right to to find this information right like it doesn't need to be buried in an archive every you know all, all the time it doesn't need to be um you know hidden behind the paywall of a university library or something and that's not to say that like i think i don't think universities are you know trying to you know trying to you know create more ivory towers or anything like that i just think that that's the nature of academia sometimes is that it it was built on a sort of ivory tower system. And no matter how many times you, you take the ivory bricks out of the wall, it still seems to have more there. There still seems to be some, some barriers there. Um, so, uh, so where is it in the academic public f- format? I'd say it's probably leaning more format. There, there is, it is how to, in the sense that um, uh, I've organized it to be basically 13 rights, um, which I use that term loosely, but the idea is that, um, if you kind of look at these 13 different rites that are common to multiple forms of witchcraft in America, and you you can figure out how to kind of work your version of this within your own cultural context for each of these rites, you're going to have a, a pretty solid witchcraft practice. Because I think a lot of people want to have, they want to have a, a, a witchcraft practice kind of handed to them, right? They want this. This is what a lot of the 101 books, Wicca 101 books do, right? Is there like, okay, here are your eight Sabbaths. Um, here's how you do your espits. Here's your altar setup. Here's the tools you're going to need to go buy, blah, 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 blah. And for some people, that's fine. I think that's great. But I think if you're talking about folk magic, the, the, the run into problems because people are going to say, well, I don't have a complete system of my own. So how about that system over there? And they'll start grabbing, either cherry picking or grabbing whole hog, uh, a system that isn't theirs. Um, 
And so what I would rather people do is look at these different systems, see what the sort of functions are underneath all this, and then develop the the, the sort of practical stuff um, in their own practice. So what I ask people to do, uh, and I have some very weird exercises in this book, um, everything from, I say, you know, sort of throw out, throw out Book of Shadows and say, forget making a pretty book of shadows. You're not going to have the, the practical magic three folds things, you know, that were, it's, that's wonderful to aspire to. If you get there one day, I would love to see it posted on Instagram, but I have you do what's called a commonplace book, which is um, it's essentially like a smash book, right? Or, or a, a photo album that you're constantly changing, adding stuff into. And it may not always be magic. You may have your grandmother's uh, cookie recipe in there, right? Um, I do. I have I have uh, recipes uh, in my got my little commonplace book, and you can see it's just it's stuffed. It's stuffed full of crap, right? And that's you know it, it's it's not pretty. It's not you know wonderfully well organized. There's just you know a bunch of stuff in it, um, but it it works for me um, to hold kind of all the the information I need. And so I ask people to kind of look at their look at this as a, a living book, a thing that's constantly in in evolutionary process, right? Or I'll have them. Um, you know, I don't know that I've ever encountered a magic book that set specifically says like, go talk to your grandparents and ask them about their day, ask them about their lives and don't ask them about folk magic because they may not want to talk about folk magic. They may be really turned off by that, but maybe start asking them about like some weddings that they went to. Maybe ask about holidays that they, that they remember because you know, what's going to happen. You're going to learn a lot about your grandparents and you're going to pick up a little bit of folk magic in the process because those subjects have folk magic connected to them, right? So that's the kind of practical mm-hmm. side of the book. The research process was kind of two things, right? Um, one, I've got my academic side, and I don't know if you've if you've been on my Instagram, you've seen there's this photo I posted of me when I finished the book, uh, and I gathered together all just the print materials, not even the digital ones, but all the physical books and stuff that I had. And I made a pile of them and it's literally like six feet long by almost three feet high. Like I could lie down behind it and hide. It's like a fort. <laughs> like it's a book fort. It was a big pile. <laughs> yeah. So I have, I have wow. that. And then the other side of it is just like you, Jay. Um, I, I, th- I think that there are a lot of people who want to write books like this and only do that part of it. But for me, the other part of it is you have to talk to people. Um, and, you know, thankfully I have got a podcast where I've spent the past 10 years talking to people on a regular basis about magical practice, but I've also attended classes. Uh, I've talked to people um, uh, outside of those classes. I've, I've uh, talked to people who've written into us uh, sharing their magical experiences, um, communicating with people like that's a big part of this. You have to be willing to talk to people, to interview them, um, to have conversations with them, um, to understand what's going on. Because if you don't do that, um, all you get is this two-dimensional um, top-down version of folk magic and it's way more textured and way more crunchy than that absolutely as as queen co meadows from conjure south would say you can't practice folk magic unless you know the folk yes yes yes, framing that context that direction that we are approaching the magic from is where all the real secrets of that work are like you can you know, stick a playing card above your door all day long. If you don't know why, you know, that was originally done or why they chose that particular card or whatever, then you're missing big pieces of it. Yes. 100%. Oh, I love that. I am kind of curious, Corey, if you have any current hot takes on like current popular witchcraft, if you have any like spicy tea you want to share with us. I don't know that I, I mean, I'm a Gemini, so I'm like, Every take is is equally hot and entirely lukewarm uh, just because as a Gemini, I'm like everywhere at once and all, si- all sides are the same, um, which is not 
not really true, but it, it definitely feels like I'm always playing devil's advocate with myself. Um, but I, there have been some hot takes by, um, I don't know if you follow Sarah, Sarah Ann Lawless, um, but she, she has had some really fun hot takes lately um, where she's kind of pointing out like, Hey, uh, here's this, this specific set of grimoires that derives from Protestant, um, you know, sort of Protestant tradition, right? Um, here, you know, here are some from the Catholic tradition and, and like basically saying like, look, you don't have to appropriate somebody else's spirituality. If your if your family history is all Protestant or if your family history is all Catholic or some mix of the two, there's stuff that you can go and access. Um, you just have to, you have to learn to not be turned off by the fact that there's some Christianity in there too. Uh, and, and I mean, it, like in my, my personal practice is very much um, a sort of modified folk Catholic practice because I was raised Irish and Polish folk Catholic. That was a big part of my mm-hmm. upbringing. Um, with a little Italian influence because I have, I had friends growing up who were Italian Catholics. So, so I have that in there too. Um, but like, that's the thing is, is, and, and I get it. There are a lot of people who have been really hurt, really hurt by Christianity. So I get that there's a barrier, that there's a wall there. Um, but the problem is that if you're looking at North American folk magic, um, you're going to eventually run into it. You're going to eventually run into some, some Christianity in your folk magic and you have to make decisions about that. Um, and I found some communities that do a really great job of working around that. Your Glovo community uh, here in Pennsylvania um, is essentially kind of uh, working around the sort of historical Christianity and the sort of German American Pennsylvania Dutch communities. Um, and, and they're looking to kind of the, the extant sources of, you know, Teutonic mythology and sort of um, it's sort of a Pennsylvania Dutch heathenry is what they've developed. Um, but they're very honest about that. They're very honest about like, you know, this is based on some interviews that we've done where people, you know, maybe had a little altar to, to frig up in their, their attic for, for a while while they were also going to church every Sunday. Right. Um, and so they'll, they'll kind of look for that stuff and help to, to work, work that out. But at the same time, they also recognize in a lot of the Braukarai practices, a lot of the, what we call powwow practices are very rooted in Protestant Christianity uh, and so you have to kind of figure out, like, do I want to carefully strip out the Christianity because I know wh- where that's coming from and how to work through that? And they spend a lot of time doing that. Um, or uh, do I do I accept it kind of where it is and and understand that I don't have to be I don't have to be the mainstream Orthodox Christian uh, to practice this because a lot of people who were practicing this were not the mainstream Orthodox Christians. They were very left of center, very um, kind of sort of almost a, a queered witchcraft or a queered uh, Catholicism, a queered Protestantism. Um, one of my favorite um, Hexenmeister uh, stories is about a fellow named Lee Gandy, who um, it, I think he didn't quite have uh, an understanding of what being transgender was because he was writing his story in kind of the 60s and 70s um, in a Pennsylvania German community and then moved into the South. But he talks about um, sort of being visit, visited by this sort of holy lady and that there was a side of himself that was a woman too. And that was what gave him his power um, was, was being kind of in that, that woman state. Um, and that's a very, you know, he's, he's still kind of also Christian in there too, but it's, it's not the same Christianity that everyone around him was practicing. And it's a very modified version of that, but it worked. It worked for him. And he was very effective at what he did. So I, and I think you find stories like that all over the place when you look at um, North American folk magic. So I feel like I've gone way off track there. Uh, did I answer the question? Yeah. Okay. Yes. 
you did. Yeah. No, I love that. And we talk a lot about the this on the podcast as well, is it's like with witchcraft in general, it, it, I wish people could see what I am doing uh, on the video screen is I'm, I'm putting my hands together. Witchcraft and Christianity go mm-hmm. together. You kind of have like they're they're together. You're going to run into one or the other at some point. And I think that does get mm-hmm. missed a lot in like the popular witchcraft that you see in social media and whatnot, which seems to be the um, the, the thing that's like leading the witchcraft mm-hmm. movement currently and whatnot. And people seem to think that witchcraft has been pagan through the ages and that there was some like secret, you know, it's like, no, nah, that was Christianity was blended in yeah. there. Well, as I mean, well. that's the narrative that was sort of sold to a lot of, um, a lot of, neo-pagans um and into a lot of people practicing any any form of magical spirituality for a long time was that there was this sort of underground and i get it because you you want that to exist and there are potentially some pockets of things that that did preserve little bits and pieces but it, it inevitably it's always going to also be blended with the overculture um the which is oftentimes very christian uh, even if it's not, and that's that. This uh, even if it's not officially Christian, even if it's not, even if it's not, or if, even if the Christianity that's being blended is not the official Christianity or the Orthodox Christianity, there's a really great book I um, read a, a long time ago that talks about like all these letters going back and forth from like bishops to priests and priests to archbishops and talking about like we've got all of these people that are nominally Christian, but they're doing all these crazy magical things. <laughs> like, what do we do? And a lot of times they were like, are are they still coming to church? Are they tithing? Just let them go. Let it, it's fine. Leave, leave it alone. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. Like, right. just shut up and don't say anything. It's fine. Right. <laughs> I saw uh, quite a bit of that. And I'm only like 100 pages into the book, um, The Visions of Isabel oh, Gowdy. Emma will be. Oh, she's so good. I know. Emma will She's so great. I would love to interview her. But has have you ever Not, been able to no, get a hold of very her? Very hard to get a hold of her. Oh, God. I know somebody's got to do it. Um, but they, they, uh, or that she pointed that out in the book too, is that people were still practicing, like going to church on Sunday, et cetera, et cetera. But on the side, they were like, you know, practicing folk magic t- traditions yeah. and whatnot. And that the bishops or whoever would kind of turn a blind eye to it. They'd be like, eh, yep. they're going to church. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, uh, there's a, there's a really fantastic, um, on, on my honeymoon many, many years ago, we went to a place called Roslyn Chapel up in Scotland. Um, and it's really fascinating. You go in there and you see, um, you know, there's a lot of Christian iconography, obviously it's a chapel, but then you have like green men everywhere, like these little green men faces and stuff like that, that were part of the architecture of the chapel and like these sort of wood spirits and nature spirits that are woven in there. Um, so, I mean, it's one of those things where like, there's, there's no, there's no one history that's going to get everything right. And there's no like one, you know, one true always practiced that this is the only way, no matter how many times various sort of Orthodox Christian groups wanted there to be this, it never happened. Right. You always had people who were going to take it and run with it in their own direction. Um, and witchcraft, witchcraft thrives in that sort of liminal marginality. And I love it. Yes, I was going to say earlier when we were kind of talking about the trickster nature of um, divination and whatnot is like witchcraft is inherently also very trickstery and, and rebellious. Yeah, there's um there's a great she's a she's a, a queer folklorist named Kay Turner and um, and I reference her in the book, but she talks a lot about. Do you know the story of like boo hags? Have you ever heard those stories? 
like the night flying oh. witches that sort of slip out of their skin and go flying around. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Right, yes. Well, she talks about the fact that like these stories, which are shared in a number of cultures, they're, they're, you know, in, um, uh, they're in uh, Mexican American culture. Um, uh, Lechuzas, I think, is is a is a fairly common version of this. Um, uh, and then you have the Buhags, kind of in the south. You have all these kind of slip skin witches. And she talks about the fact that, like, if you look at what's going on in the story, it's usually the husband who is, um, you know, the wife is slipping away to go be a witch at night and like flying around and doing her like terrorizing the community stuff. Which good for her, party on one. Um, but then when she comes back, he's like salted her skin or put hot peppers in the skin and chopped it up. So she can't. And what does that tell you about their relationship? Right. That's an abusive <laughs> relationship. And so this, you know, witchcraft is, yep. is the chance to escape from that. Right. It's this sort of saying, well, you know, fuck that. I don't need this relationship. Bye. And she flies out the window. Right. <laughs> um, and so there is that okay. sense of like, you know, that witchcraft is, is occasionally, you know, looking at what's going on in culture and saying, you know, double middle fingers by, you know, we're, we're out, you know, I'm not going to put up with this shit anymore. Um, and I love that. And that happens with witchcraft interacting with Christianity too. So. Oh yeah. I love that. That's a wonderful story. You know that your marriage is good when you have to leave your skin to get away from your husband. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we kind of let you go here, I'm, hey, you know, I, I've been there <laughs> just to say, yeah. I Definitely better. <laughs> You're like, bye, y'all. Uh, so Later. before we all slip out of our skins and, and head off to the Sabbath here, um, I'm loving this conversation that we're having about um, Christianity and its role in witchcraft. And that's something that I tell people a lot, that if if you are, like, I again, we understand that, you know, people's Christian, Christian upbringing can be very traumatic. It can be very damaging. But also when we come to this work, this work is not meant to be the the complete opposite of Christianity. And at the same time, it's, we're very much limiting ourselves if we kind of run away from anything that has Christian tones in this work. Um, so I always recommend to people, if you are having trouble kind of healing and integrating your Christian upbringing with what you have going on now, um, I very much kind of direct people over to the works of a woman named Nadia Bowles Weber. Um, she is a Lutheran pastor um, she's like six one, covered in tattoos. She's like an ex. Um, she's she's a recovering uh, alcoholic and drug user. Um, swears like a sailor, and she is like just the breath of fresh air that we've all needed in the Christian community. Um, so I highly recommend beginning with um, her podcast interview on the Rich Roll podcast. Um, that conversation that they had together healed my soul. Um, so highly recommend that if you are struggling with that. Um, and my final sort of question for you, um, piggybacking off of that, um, where does the separation between folk magic and witchcraft lie and mm -hmm. how is that maybe changing right now? Right. Well, I mean, uh, I think witchcraft, witchcraft is, is oftentimes, um, described from the outside by the people who, who want to label what, what everyone else is doing as witchcraft. Um, or label someone else a witch for oftentimes, oftentimes not, not good purposes, right? Um, claiming this, the name of which claiming the status of which is something that um, we've been able to do in recent times. And that's wonderful. But in previous eras, that was a dangerous word to have thrown around it. Uh, you know, 
uh, around you. And there's some people who like, you know, the Grace Sherwood, um, who's was known as the witch of Punga, right? Her neighbors are all kind of accusing her of, of being a witch, but she was an herb. She was essentially an herbalist uh, at the time um, doing, you know, herbal, herbal salves and creations, but then she had a really bad temper and, uh, and that got her in trouble. Right. So was she, was she a witch? Was she doing witchcraft? I don't know because that's what people are saying she's done. But from her perspective, she was very upset by that term, right? She didn't like being called this. And at the same time, I sort of, I sort of celebrate her as a witchcraft ancestor in North America because, um, because that term was applied uh, to her and, and she embodies kind of that spirit of rebelliousness and liminality. She wasn't going to conform to what they expected. Um, she wasn't going to be meek about those accusations. She turned them around uh, on people and then practiced some folk healing and folk remedies, maybe even a little folk magic on the side. So, and so, so, you know, folk magic, I think pervades every community, every group um, and, and really worldwide, but in North America specifically, it's, it's very, very much a part of everybody's, um, social, uh, experience, even if you don't realize it's there, witchcraft though, um, I think is oftentimes this, this kind of thing where people, uh, people look at a collection of practices, oftentimes which are a collection of folk magic, and they look for a few hallmarks, a few trademarks, oftentimes, um, uh, I was going to say intercourse with the devil, but what I mean by that is like interactions with the devil. <laughs> um, <laughs> although you, it can go the other way too. That's fine. Yeah. If that's, if that's it, what you're into, I'm down, down with, yeah, yeah, you do you. Um, yeah. I'm not here. To, I'm not here to yuck someone's yum on that. Um, but at the same time, uh, so there's this kind of trafficking with the other world and otherworldly spirits. Um, oftentimes ones that are seen as dangerous and nefarious. There's oftentimes a willingness to do magic that could be, um, what we would consider baneful or harmful. Now I will, and something I emphasize massively in the book is to say most of the time when somebody's doing baneful work or harmful work, at least in folklore and in folk and in history, um, it's because the community is not living up to their obligations. The community around them is not um, taking care of everyone in the community. So um, if somebody's having to steal milk using a rag, it's because the milk's not being shared. It's not being, your, people are going hungry, Right. Um, the community has a responsibility mm -hmm. to prevent that. And when they don't, they shouldn't be surprised that witchcraft shows up. Um, and so that's, that's oftentimes some of the stuff that people are looking at is they're looking for this sense of like, there could be malefic magic. There's this trafficking with the other world. And there's also a kind of um, willingness to be an outsider or outcast or act in ways that are socially um, deemed sort of socially inappropriate or socially um uh, off limits. And I think if you have those things floating around, then people are going to start throwing the word witch around too. Whereas if you're just, you know, worrying about sweeping under someone's feet or worried about, you know, you dropped a dish rag on the floor and that means company's coming or something like that. That's a different thing. And people say, well, that's, that's just folk belief, right? That's just, that's just uh, superstition. It's just, that's just what that person does, right? That's kind of how they'll, they'll frame it. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. All right. So tell everybody where they can buy your book, where they can find you, what you have going on. Let us know all the details. If you're looking for me, newworldwitchery.com is the best place to go find kind of everything. Um, you know, that's that's where the podcast is. There's tons of articles on there. There's, over, I think, over 200 articles on various types of folk magic. Um, there's, you know, links to the, where you can buy books and things like that, both my book and uh, books from any of the guests that we've had on the show as well. So So lots of resources there. Um, that's the best place to find me. You can also find me on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, now on TikTok. Um, so I'm all over the social media, YouTube. We've got a YouTube channel too. 
Uh, and then the book itself, uh, it's coming out from Llewellyn uh, in April. Uh, so you can order it directly through Llewellyn. You can order it through bookshop.org. Go to your local uh, witchy bookshop or your local book, Books a Million, whatever you got handy. Um, you can get it any of these places. And if you if you absolutely must, there's there's also Amazon. So <laughs> that's, that's available too. So Awesome. And where can we, what's your, your username for your TikToks, your Instagram, et cetera? Uh, 99% of the time it's going to be new world witchery, all one word in lowercase. Um, the one exception to that is I think on Twitter that wouldn't fit. So it was at NWW, it's at NW witchery basically. So. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. All right. Great. This was a fantastic conversation and I am so glad that we got to have you here. This was so fun. Thank you all so much for having me on. I love this. This is, this is, this is my jam. <laughs> Thank all you right. so much. Alrighty, everyone, remember... Do witchcraft. Do it. Support for this podcast comes from our listeners. If you would like to support Invoking Witchcraft with a one-time donation, please go to invokingwitchcraft.com backslash donate. Or if you'd like to become a premium listener, join the coven at invokingwitchcraft.com backslash coven. There you'll get access to our exclusive Facebook group for discussion and connection, as well as access to occasional workshops. We hope to see you there.